All right, good morning once again, and good to be with you today. We are finishing our series in Exodus, and next week we're starting Sermon on the Mount. So next week is a really great week to, uh, to jump in. If you have anyone that you've been thinking about uh, inviting to church, praying for them, next week, really great to jump in. If you're visiting today, sorry, picked the wrong day. No, I'm just kidding. Today is also a great day to visit, and we're, we're very glad that you're here with us. Um, this, this is a nice place for us to stop in Exodus if we're not going to go all the way through, because Exodus 19 forms a pretty nice bookend uh, for, for here, and from something that happened in, uh, way back in the beginning of Exodus, before any of the big events, and the people of Israel are brought to where they are. In Exodus 3, when Moses first encounters God at the burning bush, um, before, before the plagues, before the Passover, before the Red Sea was parted and the miracles in the wilderness and the people are freed from their slavery, before any of that was reality, in Exodus 3, God said this. He said, but I will be with you, speaking to Moses, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's kind of a funny thing to say uh, for like Moses asked for a sign, just confirmation that God, you're, you're really going to do what you say you're going to do. Just, just help me, help me to feel confident about that. And God says, okay, here's, here's the sign. One day you will be back at this mountain and when you come back, you won't be alone. You're going to have the people of Israel with you, my people with you, and you will serve and worship me together on this mountain. This is uh, kind of amazing that now they're, they're finally here and Moses gets to look back because at a lot of points along the way, it didn't seem like they'd make it, um, but they did. God's promise is true. They made it. This is, this is a really big step that people have to take uh, when, when you want to start taking your relationship with God seriously, if you want to grow in your relationship with God, if you want to grow in your faith, uh, the, the step that you have to take is you need to let God actually be God in your life. Does that make sense? Um, you, can't, you can't advance in your relationship with God or advance in your faith or grow in your faith while you are still trying to be God. You're still trying to be in control of some things. Uh, it's, still, it's still your will and your plans, and you're going to do what, what you want to do, and then maybe you'll see what God thinks about that later, uh, but, but you're still trying to be God in your own life. God has to be God. And the reason, the reason you have to take this step um, is because he is. Right? He is the creator. He is sovereign, and he's always faithful. Not one of his promises ever fails. He's always true to his word. Uh, for, for some of you who are here today, maybe the, the thing that you need to do and, and you've never taken this step before, um, you, you need to surrender yourself to God. You need to let him be God. You need to, to trust that his will is good, that his promises are true, um, and, and you have to trust him to be in the seat of authority in your life. Some of you, that's your first step. Some of you, uh, you, you took that step, and you've walked with God, and at some point, You've tried to take the reins back from him for certain things, right? Maybe just for like a couple areas in your life, you've tried to take the reins back from him. And so the step for you, you need to take is to give them back. 
you have to always continually let God be God in your own life. He always keeps his promises. He's good. He keeps this promise with Moses. Again, in spite of all the times that between Exodus 3 and Exodus 19, where it seemed like it just wasn't going to happen, right? Pharaoh seemed like he wasn't going to let it happen. The Red Sea seemed like it wasn't going to let this happen. The enemies that they fought, Amalek, didn't seem like it was going to let this happen. Uh, No food or no water in the wilderness, and yet here they are, just like God is faithful to his promise he makes with Moses, Jesus makes a similar promise. In John 14, Jesus says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God sticks with Moses all the way through, through, through all the, the trouble and all the obstacles until he brings him to the place he promised he would bring him. Jesus is the same. Jesus promises to stick with you until he brings you to the place that he's promised, the one that he's preparing for you that's with him, right? A, a place at his side in, in eternity, where there is no sin, no suffering, no death. Let God be God and and trust him. What Exodus 19 is all about, uh, they they arrive at Mount Sinai. This is like a really big, significant event in the history of Israel and in the history of God's interaction with human beings and how he relates to us because it's the place where he gives the law to Moses for (coughs) Moses to give it to the people, and it's through this, like the law is a condition for the people of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship with God, and, and we'll get more into that in just a second, but here's Exodus 19, verse 1, says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you out on, wing- on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered him together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So here's, here's what's happening with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. God is going to prepare a way for them to become his people, and he will be their God, and they will be his, his treasured possession among all peoples of the earth. Right? God is a, uh, inviting them into a special relationship with him. That's what entering into a covenant relationship means. Right? It's, it's a mutual commitment that they're making to one another, and it's something he's inviting them into, so they don't have it now, but God is offering it to them. And here's Here's, here's where it might be a little bit confusing to you because 
uh, for, for many people, this is all over the place, many people pick up a piece of their theology, their understanding of who God is and who we are and what our relationship to God is, they pick up a piece of their theology from a Christmas song by a man named Gene Autry. I thought it was Elvis, but I was confusing it. It was, um, I was thinking the, the blue Christmas one, but it just doesn't even sound like this one. But anyway, so it's Gene Autry, and the, the line of the Christmas song is, um, Santa knows we're all God's children, and that makes everything right. And that is, like, that's taken root. Like, e- like people think we're all God's children. And I'm sorry to say, but all people are not God's children. At least that's not what Jesus says. Like, let's listen to Jesus. Forget that gene hack. Uh, Jesus, when he's, when he's talking to, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who are picking a fight with him, and he's, he's like defending himself, and they're having this conversation. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says this to them. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Although Jesus, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here, um, he's speaking to them about their sin. That When they sin, the reason they do that is they are, um, they're doing the desire of their father who is the devil. Like, when we sin, that, that's what it is. It's something that we want to do, and we're, you know, we, we understand what God's word is saying, what his authority is saying. We say, God, I disagree with you about this. This is what I want to do. That's, that's what our sin is, and the reason that's in us is because it's, it's the sin nature that we have, and it's in line with the, the nature of the devil himself. We're not all God's children. We're all God's creation. Everything is God's creation. Everything is his possession. He makes that clear. Um, But we don't automatically have the special relationship with God where he is our father and we are his children. You have to become a child of God. That's a change that has to take place in your life and in your relationship with God. And that's why covenant is so important. God is giving this opportunity to Israel through Moses and specifically through the law that he's about to give. Just as later, he gives an opportunity to us to enter into covenant relationship with him and and have this special relationship where we become children of God. And that happens through Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus has done. But again, this this is where we have to let God be God, because he's the one who decides the way that we become his children. We don't get to, like, make up our own way. We don't get to figure it out on on our own. Uh, God makes the way for us. He says, here's the opportunity. Here's the way that you become my child. And so it's important that we know what that way is. We have to pay attention to what he said. We have to understand what he said and and listen to what he says about this, this way that he's created for us. And the nice thing is, like, he doesn't make it a secret. He wants everyone to know what this way is. He wants the world to know. And, and that's what he addresses next with Moses. In verse 9, uh, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. What God is doing by making this like a public thing with the people of Israel witnessing and hearing the voice of God himself speaking to Moses on the mountain. He's establishing the authority of Moses to speak on his behalf when Moses delivers the law to them. So the people don't go, well, Moses, 
you could have just made this all up, right? Like, how, like, how do we know? Um, it's, it's so different. This is so different than, like, uh, Joseph Smith, right? Joseph Smith, the guy who says that he found golden tablets in, like, the forest, and then he hid them in a hat, and then he was illiterate, so he read the golden tablets out loud to someone else to transcribe and write down what they said, and then later, when people wanted to see the golden tablets, they were lost forever. And that's how Mormonism started. I think that man must have been the most charismatic man in history to get anyone to believe that. Like, holy cow. I don't know. I, like, I wish I was that persuasive. Um, but that's not what it is with Moses. With Moses, it is, you know, they're seeing God's presence manifest on the mountain through this thick cloud that descends, and they hear his voice so that they're going to understand, like, okay, this isn't Moses' just own thoughts and ideas and things that he's writing down. These are things that are coming to Moses from God, and so we can accept those things as the authority of God himself. And that's, and that becomes scripture. Uh, if, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to pursue a relationship with Jesus, God's word must be your highest authority. When God's word tells you something, when it says yes, and, and you wish it was saying no, and like, I don't want to do that, but it's saying yes, you should do that. Um, or when God's word is telling you no, and it's something you wish it would say yes, I want to do that, but it's saying no. Um, when that happens, God's word is not the thing that should be changed to fit you you should be changed. God's word should change you because God knows better than us. And it shouldn't change you in like this, uh, like some idea that you might have in this like manipulative way that makes you miserable and like, ah, God says this and I don't wanna, but like I wanna go to heaven and so I'm just gonna do it. Um, and, and I, but I feel like I'm missing out on like all the fun, awesome things that I wanna do but God said no, um, that, that's not how you should be receiving God's word or the way that it should change you. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 19 says this about God's law. Um, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's word should be something that when we come to it, you can enjoy it, you can delight in it. Because God's way is better than our way. When we're on God's way, there's more joy on that way. There's more peace. There's, there's less guilt. There's less unnecessary hurt in your own life. There's less unnecessary hurt that you're inflicting on other people around you. And Jesus tells us the whole summary of the law is to, is to love God and to love your neighbor. Scripture it has to be our highest authority. And, and it's, it's the whole of Scripture, right? 
Moses, we recognize Moses as being the primary author of the first five books of the Bible, the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and in those five books, the law is, is given through those. And, and there are parts of it that, um, that are, are like written about after his death, so like probably Joshua or someone else wrote in a few of those things, but, like, but Moses, who we know is meeting with God on the mountain, he wrote those things. But even through the rest of scripture, the prophets who are receiving word from God, uh, Jesus himself, he talks about the whole Old Testament, and he says that, that the whole Old Testament, that's God's word, and God's word can't be broken. Uh, Paul, he tells us all scripture is breathed out by God. Peter says this, Peter says, uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The, the, like the way it works with scripture is even though, yes, there are human authors who are putting the pen to the paper to write it down, God is at work in that by the power of the Holy Spirit to carry along those people to make sure that they're communicating God's word to us. And because God's the actual source, his word has to be our highest authority and, it, and we, we see it and we see what it's telling us and how it's telling us to live and the, the commands, the guardrails for life that it's giving us and within those guardrails that he sets, there is the most joy, there is the most peace, there is the least uh, you know, unnecessary pain inflicted upon others. And because it's this great high authority for us, um, it, it's important that you know how to interpret scripture. You have to know what it's saying and what it's not saying. Um, sometimes it's not always clear. Sometimes it is difficult to wrestle the meaning from it. But, but, but here's the point. When, when you know what God's word is saying or when you're pretty, pretty clear, there seems to be good agreement on here's what God's word is actually saying, the next thing you have to do is trust him and submit to it. Even when it is something that could make you deeply unpopular and, and disliked by the majority of the, of the people around you. Uh, the thing is, like, the th whatever is acceptable and not acceptable to the majority of the people around you, like, that's always changing, right? It's different here than it is in other places in the world right now, and it's different now than it was 30 years ago. Like, the stuff that was acceptable and not acceptable 30 years ago is very different than what is acceptable and not acceptable now. It's constantly changing, but, but God's standard and his word, it doesn't change. Now, it's always true in every time, in every place. God's word has to be our highest authority. It should be the thing that changes us. Now, the next thing that happens in Exodus 19 is it feels like what happens next is God um, God starts telling Israel something that one of my drill sergeants once told me. So when I was 17, I joined the Army National Guard, and uh, summer 2009, I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, infantry school, and, um, and it was terrible. But uh, one of my drill sergeants told us, my platoon, uh, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And some of the guys in our platoon did, and we all wish they didn't. Um, it's one of the things God is telling Israel, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Uh, another thing that people like to say, and it's kind of like fits with this, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You're aware of that one? The more familiar, the more comfortable you are with something. It's almost like the more comfortable you are with, with disrespecting it or just making presumptions that, uh, that may not be right. 
um, toddlers all go through that phase. Uh, they, they go through this phase where they're trying, like you're, as a parent, you're trying to set boundaries and then the toddler is like pushing the boundaries to see like what's a real boundary and what's not. But it's like funny to them. It's like a game. But it's not funny to you. It's your life and it's your peace and your mental health. And, um, you know, so like, so I have a toddler. And on like the one hand, I'm so glad that she, that she loves me and she feels comfortable with me, that she's like smiling when she pushes them because like she trusts me. I love that she trusts me, but at the same time, I wonder when is the correct age for her to start understanding the fear of God? Uh, <laughs> and that's not a threat, so don't, don't call CPS or anything. Um, another thing people like to say, uh, mess, mess around and find out. Right, there's a more forceful version of that. The prodigals out there know what I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it. But mess around and find out. When it comes to God, when it comes to God, sometimes people let familiarity breed contempt. They mistake kindness for weakness, and then they mess around, and you don't want to find out, okay? Look at this. Exodus 19 from, uh, from the second half of verse 9 says this. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there, was, uh, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break, uh, they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to, uh, to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. A pretty serious situation. Uh, God's, God's presence is going to descend on the mountain, and anyone who comes near it, anyone who touches it, shall be put to death, this warning. And then on the third day, when his presence does descend on the mountain in fire and with 
uh, with lightnings and thunders and smoke and the blast of a trumpet. When the people hear the blast of the trumpet, they tremble in the camp. And all the warnings to keep people away, lest many of them should perish because they can't stand to be in the presence of the glory of God. There's an emphasis in the text here on on keeping their distance, the limits that are set, the distance that is not, they're, they're not able to cross that distance and come to God themselves. Why? Because it'd be dangerous for them to enter into God's presence the way that they currently are. If there's no change that comes to them and they stand in God's presence, they could not live. Here's another shortcoming in our theology, just like, um, just like the Christmas thing, like we're all God's children. So here, here's another one, and this one, I think everyone has this one to, to some degree, um, whether, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, uh, whether you've been a Christian for, for a long time. Here's a deficiency in our theology that we think of God much lower than he really is, and we think of ourselves much higher than we really are. I think that's true of everyone. I know that's true of me. And I don't necessarily mean this in, in a critical way where the point is like, now you all need to do better and I need to do better. Um, I think there is some of that. We, do, we can do better. We can uh, be in more awe of who God is. The more we understand who he is, that can always be something that grows. Um, sinful pride where we are lifting ourselves up, that is something that always needs to be humbled. But when I'm bringing up this point now, um, what I want you to understand is the reason we see God lower than he actually is and ourselves higher than we actually are, one of the reasons for that is just the natural limitations that we have. Natural limitations. Um, There's a species, uh, there are a few species of cave salamanders that have lived in the dark in these caves for so long, they no longer have eyes. They're in the cave, in the dark, and they don't know that there is a sun above them, let alone a sky that's above the ceiling of the cave. They don't know about any of that. They don't even know that they're blind. It's just their life. It's the world that they live in even though the actual world that they live in is much bigger than they understand and it's filled with so many things. Like that's, that's the natural limitation I'm talking about. We're, we're the cave salamander. Even though we've seen the sun and we know the sky and we have this cool James Webb telescope that can see galaxies super far away that, uh, that, are, uh, that are pretty cool, we, we can't see the God who's over all of that. We can't see the, uh, the, the God of all creation, the Lord of glory, who's created everything, the source of life. This is especially a consequence for, like, if you grew up in church and you went to kids' ministries, this might be something that, like, lodged itself in you. Because, like, kids' ministries are great. They're a great way to serve God and make disciples, and I think they do a lot of things really, really well. Um, but one thing that can be, um, you know, d- just a, defici- a deficiency in the kids' ministries is you tell kids every single week, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God forgives you, he loves you, he wants to know you. All true, but if you tell them that and you don't tell them enough about their sin and, 
in, in that God's love, it, it's not a given. It's kind of this amazing act of mercy. Um, if, if they don't understand that part of it, instead of being amazed at God's love, that, wow, I can't believe he actually loves me. I can't believe he has this incredible mercy for me. God's grace is overwhelming and amazing. Instead of that, they're gonna go, well, of course God loves me. I'm the best. Why wouldn't he? Like, God loves everyone. We're all God's children, right? Like, this song. Gene knows. Uh, it's, it's just not the given that some of us think that it is. We, we have no idea what it really means to enter into the presence of God. Like, what that would actually be like. Because, again, he's so much lower and we think we're so much higher. We think that distance is smaller. Prophet Isaiah gives us a good idea of what it would actually be to stand in the presence of the glory of God because he gets a vision of God's glory and he responds like this in Isaiah 6. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's glory is far more incredible than, than we can imagine, so much so that we, we shouldn't be able to stand in the presence of his glory and live. And if we got just a glimpse of it, the thing, the thought that would be consuming all of us is he's so much higher and I'm so much lower, I'm lost, woe is me, like this is too much for me. We would be confronted with our own uh, our, our own deficiency, how far we fall short. <coughs> See, like, some people have this idea that, like, God is nice, that God is just, like, a nice thing. And I think most people are just being polite, but they go, like, oh, you believe in God, that's really nice. You know, like, oh, you care about what God says, you're trying to do what God says, like, that's really nice, good for you. It's like, it's this thing that's, like, it's nice if you do it, but if you don't, like, well, it's all right. It's not. He is the, the Lord of glory, the King of all creation. And we are separated from him by a much further distance than we're able to comprehend. And the reason for this separation is our sin, the sinful condition of our hearts. And the sinful condition of our hearts reveals itself by rebelling against the authority of God anytime we don't like the authority of God. Mistaking his, his kindness for weakness, familiarity, greed and contempt. People are uh, encouraged to mess around until they find out. And then it's too late. What, what do we do? What do we do about that distance that we're not able to do anything about? Like, what, what's the answer? The, the answer for Israel is they're given a temporary system 
that remains in effect until the arrival of Jesus, and that is the giving of the law through Moses that gives the system of sacrifice, that here are God's commands, here's how you should live, this is the way that you should go, and they, they try to live that way, and then when they sin, they are able to offer sacrifice that is a, a temporary measure to mitigate their sins so that they can be in this special relationship with God in this covenant, which they are, and, and they are his treasured possession. And that is the, the tabernacle worship later, the temple worship, and, uh, and, and the system, again, it remains in effect until the arrival of Jesus. And Jesus is the answer that we get. And he's much better because Jesus, um, he, he fulfills or he finishes the work that the temporary system could never do by becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin offering his life one time for all time to pay the debt that we owe for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be changed and made new. The author of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So for all time, he has given a complete forgiveness that perfectly deals with our sin. Right? Under the sacrificial system, it was a temporary measure, but it couldn't take away your sin completely. That's what Jesus can do. He can forgive you completely. He can make you righteous by that one perfect sacrifice. The way that God makes for us, the way that he's put in front of you, the opportunity that you have to enter into a special relationship with God through this covenant and become a child of God, you don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to find the way to, to allow you to approach the mountain where God's glory dwells and, uh, and, and figure out the way to, to make it to the top. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to try hard enough. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to do any of that. It'd never be enough anyways, even if you tried. The, the distance is too much. It's not about you climbing the mountain yourself. The way that God makes for us, the way that he's made for you, is that Jesus comes down to you. So what we worship Jesus for and we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation, God himself becoming a human being, putting on flesh so that we could know him through this person, Jesus, who's closed the distance with us. All the glory that we see on the mountain with Moses, the, the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the fire and the trumpet and the people are trembling. All that glory lives inside the person of Jesus. And we almost never see it. He, he's, he's humble and he's meek and he approaches people. There's one time that we see it. One event known as the, the transfiguration. So Matthew 17 says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them, 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses climbs up the mountain. God's glory comes down. Jesus goes up the mountain. God's glory comes out. Jesus himself is God. All the glory of God is contained in him. And Jesus is God's way for us to enter into this covenant relationship with him, not by, uh, not by obeying the law and doing all the right things and then, uh, and then offering sacrifice to make it okay when, when we mess up. But he's offered the perfect sacrifice for all time. We enter into this relationship. We become children of God by faith in Jesus, by making a decision to trust him and his work alone on the cross for our forgiveness. Not trusting at all in I've been a good person, I've gone to church, I've gone to group, I've prayed, I've read the Bible, I've done the right things because I've done all these right things. Maybe God is going to uh, forgive me or that's going to help me out. No trust in any of that. Only trust in Jesus. His work alone, what he did for me, that is my confidence for salvation. There's another reason to let God be God, to let Jesus be God. Can't, can't take that role yourself. Once, I mean, again, he is God. But the one who is our God is the one who loves you so much he gave himself for you. It's the one who loves you so much he, he did the work himself to make a way for you to be forgiven, to be saved, have the promise of eternal life. You can trust him to be your authority because you see the great love he has for you. It is worth giving your life to follow him. What we're going to do next as a church is, uh, well, I'm going to pray, and then the the band's going to come up, and we're going to take communion together. So as the band is playing, you can just remain seated and uh, communion is going to be handed out. And communion is something that Christians do. So if you're not a Christian, you can just let it pass by you. If you are a Christian, even if you want to make that decision to become a Christian today, this could be the first thing that you do as a Christian. Um, take it, uh, hold on to it. Once everyone's received it, while the band is still up here, I'll come up again and I'll lead us through taking it together. And, uh, and, and it's a way for us to remember Jesus is our way. He's made the way for us, and he made the way through his, his broken body on the cross and his spilled blood for us, the perfect sacrifice one time for all time. Let me pray for us.